located less than 1,000 light years away and estimated at 735 times more massive than our sun, a group of shimmering diamond blue stars can be spotted in the sky. This is the Ptolemy Cluster. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Skywalk Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in, and if you didn't listen to the previous episodes, I would recommend you check those out as well. Before we get going, I have some really cool updates. I just got back from a work trip that took me up into Utah in a Border Class 2 sky. We have these programs at the observatory where people can spend a lot of money and have the observatory send a couple educators with a couple portable telescopes to whatever event they're having, and they can do some viewing. Because of the distance that this one was, it ended up being a whole weekend-long ordeal, and so that is why this episode is coming to you guys a little later than I hoped. I also had a super busy week of school, which it looks like is going to be another one coming up here as well. I have some my first round of tests in this next week, but it was so much fun to do and go on that trip, and the people were great. My fellow educator is awesome, so it was just a great experience. Also, I didn't realize that this was a thing that you could do, quite honestly. So if you guys happen to be having a big event, wedding, birthday party, whatever, and you're looking for something unique to do, this is an idea of something to look into, is hiring an observatory. In other news, I am still in the works of getting my capstone ideas sorted out and seeing what my best options are. But come on, guys, it's me. And I never do anything small. So when I finally decide it, you best believe it will be astronomy or physics related and you guys will be interested in what that is. I'm not saying that this will be a very soon thing. It may be closer to the end of the year, but who knows? Maybe I will figure it out and announce it sooner or maybe add extra life or something like that. Only time will tell. But just know that my brain and creativity has been incredibly active lately. So welcome everyone, my name is Gavin, your host for this podcast, and also the lead creator and host for two other podcasts, a YouTube channel, and accompanying social medias. My other podcasts are Dice and Card, which is where I review and take you guys through playing different board slash card games, some of which have been graciously sent in to me from companies themselves. And my other is the Hot Cocoa Chats podcast, which is just a script-free kind of chatting podcast with a guest. My YouTube channel is called Zombified, that's Z-O-M-B-E-F-I-E-D, so make sure to go check out all that content that I do. In the world of space, a super large comet known as a megacomet was discovered. Scientists believe this megacomet could be the largest icy body in our cosmic neighborhood. The megacomet has been justifiably named Bernard... Bernardinelli slash Bernstein, named after the two people who discovered it, uh, using data from 2013 to 2019 to compare locations in the sky. This icy body is believed to possibly be larger than 160 kilometers, or about 100 miles in diameter. For reference, this would be roughly the size of the distance from Phoenix, Arizona to Tucson, Arizona. So that is an incredibly large object. In in case that doesn't give you guys the scale well enough, because you guys might not know Arizona very well, this is estimated at 160 kilometers-ish wide, and the meteor that is believed to be the one that killed the dinosaurs 
was only about 10 to 15 kilometers. So roughly 10 times bigger than that one. So this is beyond a world-ending size of a comet, mega comet. But I don't think it's any threat, it's just one that was discovered. As far as space launches go, there is an important one coming up. Actually, as of recording this, this is already passed, but I'm just going to kind of stick to when I wrote the script. So on September 15th, SpaceX uh, Inspiration4 will launch with its four-person crew. The craft will launch into space, and the crew will spend three days orbiting Earth until they return back to ground. But this is important because the crew is made up of four civilians. The founder of Shift4 Payments, billionaire Jared Isaacman, bought the tickets to help with fundraising for St. Jude's Children Research Hospital. He is joined by Haley Arcanio, Sean Proctor, and Chris Sembroski. This will mark the third billionaire to fly into space this year, the first two being Jeffrey Bezos, creator of Amazon, on board a Blue, Her- Blue Origin craft and Richard Bronson aboard a Virgin Galactic craft. I'll not get into the societal or political nature of these flights. Uh, I would just kind of leave it at the facts because I know that billionaire billionaires nowadays has become just a controversial topic. The one thing I will say though is that I appreciate that this SpaceX flight at least has the intentions for raising money for St. Jude's. I will always support funding for children's hospitals and research, and I know St. Jude's is a really good one, so that really makes me happy. Their goal is $200 million to raise. But again, besides that, I'm just going to kind of leave it there. Lastly, the James Webb Space Telescope, the Holy Grail Space Telescopes, I'm so excited, uh, has been delayed, unfortunately, from the recent date of October 31st, Halloween Day, actually, to December 18th, still in 2021. So it is still scheduled to launch this year, but quite honestly, I'm not keeping my hopes up too, too high for a 2021 launch. I would, however, be shocked if it doesn't get launched next year in 2022, but we will see. It just, there's been too many delays, too many setbacks, that kind of thing. So I, and they're kind of like pushing it right to the end of 2021. I think it's better just to aim for 2022 and kind of don't disappoint people that way. Before we get into Messy 7, make sure to follow along on the Twitter at SkywalkPod, where I'll be posting graphics to go along with what you're listening to, so you can get a better grasp at what I am talking about without having to scour the internet for your own information. If you're listening to this on YouTube, then the graphic that is posted on Twitter will be on screen right now. Alright, it is our Messier refresher time. So... Charles Messier was a French astronomer, I can't speak today apparently, French astronomer born June 26, 1730, as a tenth of 12 kids. As a young kid, Messier became fascinated with space objects after a few space events that happened in his town. At age 21, he joined the French Navy and would eventually begin working at an observatory in Paris. He continued his fascination into comets, eventually getting coined the nickname Comet Ferret by King Louis the Fif- uh, 15th. In 1758, he noticed a strange cloudy patch in the constellation Taurus while observing a comet and took note of it to help astronomers not mistaken it for a comet, and then he, he then started this catalog of other comet-like, quote, objects to avoid, end quote. 
The object that he saw is known as NGC-1952, NGC being New General Catalog, but would eventually become Messier 1 or just plainly M1, which M1 meaning Messier 1 is going to be how I refer to Messier 7 or I'll just kind of say M7. But also uh, M1 is more commonly known as the Crab Nebula. Messier died in 1817 and by then had created a list of 103 objects, but the Messier catalog would be revised in the 20th century to be a total of 110. This is because afterwards his assistant and other researchers followed up on his side notes, and so astronomers now believe that the list uh, he found was actually 110 objects, not his thought of only 103. All right, that was all the backstory and updates you guys will need as we embark on our journey through the stars. Hopefully everyone made it to this point, and if you are still conscious and think you, you're a cool person, and go get yourself a cookie for all your great work. As always, star cookies get bonus points. Enough chit-chat, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Messier 7 is going to be another open star cluster, but quite bright. There is also something pretty cool that I will talk about later for modern science, but we will have to wait until we get there. But because of how bright and prominent this cluster is, it has been known since before the Middle Ages. In fact, it dates back to the to the second century. And can you guess how the cluster got its name? Well, the Greek astronomer and mathematician Claudius Ptolemy was the first to spot it, so naturally it became named after him. You know, it's just kind of an easy way to do that, it's just name it after yourself. By 130 AD, it had been added as object number 567 in his Almagest, I think that's how you say it, describing it as, quote, nebula following the sting of Scorpius, end quote. Then as usual, we don't see anything until more modern times, in 1654, the Italian astronomer Giovanni Battista Hadirna m- managed to count 30 stars in the cluster. Not soon after, in 1678, the English astronomer Edmund Halley had a catalogue of southern stars and listed this cluster in it as number 29. Fast forward almost 100 years to June 15, 1752, when the French astronomer Nicolas Louis de Locaille listed the cluster as Lac. 2.14 in his catalog of southern objects. Nicholas Louis de Locaille, Le, I, I can't pronounce things today, wow. Uh, apparently, English is just not a thing in my mind right now, so I apologize for that, but we'll just keep going. <laughs> but eventually, he described it as, quote, group of 15 to 20 stars very close together in the figure of a square, end quote. I find it kind of interesting that Almost exactly 100 years earlier, Giovanni Battista Hadirna was able to count 30 stars, and Nicolas Louis de Lacaille was only able to count up to like 20. So, kind of weird. Also, remember how he just described the object, because it will actually use a similar way to describe it, so he got the shape correct. We are now on March 23rd, 1764, when the one and only Charles Messier joins the party. Messier kind of obviously saw this object and added it to his seventh entry of it into his catalog. Messier describing it as, quote, 
star cluster more considerable than the preceding Messier 6. To the naked eye, this cluster looks like a nebulosity. It is a little distant from the preceding. Placed between the bow, or bow, of Sagittarius and the tail of Scorpius, end quote. I think it's bow because Sagittarius is usually seen as like a centaur shooting an arrow at uh, Scorpius, so I'm going to say it's uh, bow, as in the weapon. And finally, we're going even more modern, and in the 19th century, the English astronomer John Herschel described this cluster as, quote, coarsely scattered cluster of stars, end quote. Herschel really didn't give us much to go off of there. Once again, though, so many people, you gotta love these brighter objects that have been viewed since early astronomers, because, like, come on, how is it, like, to see the difference between discovery of objects like this and then, say, like, Messi 5? Like, it's so much better with these ones. But that's about it for the discovery, so how about we learn all about this new object? Remember from last time that an open star cluster varies a bit from globs, or globular star cluster. Globs are more uniform circular shape versus open open star clusters, which are kind of whatever they feel like. Globs have hundreds of thousands of stars, and opens have like hundreds, maybe thousands of stars. Globs are some of the oldest objects in the universe, and opens are incredibly young. And remember that globs are gravitationally bound to each other and uh, uh, opens are loosely bound to each other. Actually, these clusters are so young that sometimes they are still seen inside the nebula or gas clouds that created them. We will see star-forming regions called stellar nurseries today. One thing to add onto our description is that chance the, is that chain, chances are these open clusters will not survive more than a couple orbits around the center of the Milky Way before they are dispersed. So basically, because they're not gravitationally bond to each other, they are being formed by these stellar nurseries, and then like they'll just kind of float away and drift in about the time it takes to orbit the Milky Way a couple times. And also, keep note of this, because our next object is going to be a star-forming region, guys. It's going to be the Lagoon Nebula. So, make sure to remember this, because it will come up later in that object, especially because there is a correlation to what I just said here and what we're going to talk about in the Lagoon, but I don't want to spoil too much. But just kind of remember this. Keep this in the back of your head. And with a red ascension of 17 hours, 53 minutes, 51.2 seconds, and a declination of negative 34 degrees, 47 seconds, and 34 minutes, and a radius of roughly 25 light years, Messier 7 can be found in the constellation Scorpius the Scorpion. So welcome back to Scorpius, guys. Hopefully you didn't miss it too much. Messier 7 is actually going to be rather close to Messier 6. Actually, like, really close. Remember the bright star as the stinger of the scorpion to be uh, Shaula? M7 and M6 are both in between Shaula and the spout of Sagittarius, where M6 is more kind of up and to the right of the midway point on a line that's between Shaula and the Sagittarius spot. M7 is going to be kind of like down into the left of that same midpoint. So, still in the same general area, just a little bit different from each other. 
but not far away from that midpoint at all. Also check, as always, check out the Twitter images because that's kind of where you guys will get a better understanding of what I'm talking about. But M7, not that difficult to find. So towards Scorpius, M7 is just about 980 light years away or about 300 parsecs. So I don't remember if I've introduced parsecs before, but parsecs is basically the proper measurement for things in social settings light years is the big fancy way that we say stuff you get really dramatic numbers and light years sounds really cool parsecs are gonna be what astronomers actually use for measurement when they're doing their studies but what does Messier 7 actually look like like i mentioned before open clusters have whatever shape they feel like this one has a designated name but at least it is not a shape or animal, so we can't judge the astronomer name uh, naming game because we learned how bad that was with the butterfly cluster. The Ptolemy cluster is going to be a collection of stars that sort of make up a square shape in the middle. Remember that that's how it was described earlier by one of our discoverers. And then it depends on the orientation, but for from my reference of the photo I'm using and the photo I'll give you guys, um, the left corners of the box have a couple stars off of them, and the right ones have a few more stars to make longer lines off the corner. For some reason, it actually very much reminds me of the shape of the Hercules constellation, which we can talk about that in another time when we do a constellation episode, but Hercules kind of has the same shape. The last star at the bottom right arm is actually going to be a yellow, kind of orangey star, very bright, which is very contrasting to the cluster being everything else being bright blue stars. I don't know how else to best describe the cluster besides kind of that, so I will leave it at that and once again direct you to the Twitter for the images. M7 has an apparent magnitude of positive 3.3, which is very much in a naked eye object, like being able to see in a mediocre plus dark sky location. 3.3 is solid. Because it is not that difficult for, of an object to see, I would recommend just grabbing a pair of binoculars or a small telescope just to be sure that you can see it, or if you're in a little bit of a brighter location, pair of binoculars, you'll be fine. Best time to see M7 will be during the summer, which is when Scorpius is highest in the sky, both for the southern latitude viewers and for the northern latitude viewers, depending on where you are, it will be kind of like more directed at the horizon in the southern sky. It is now time for the culture or fun fact portion of our episode. Once again, information wasn't exactly abundant for this object, but we did our best. The Ptolemy Cluster is estimated at about only 800 stars, ranging each in magnitude from 6 to 10. This is kind of incredible, all these previously larger objects, and here we are only in the double digits of how many stars are in this object. It's kind of weird. The cluster is estimated at about 220 million years old. Remember, like the universe is aged at 13.8 billion years old, guys. And this guy is only 220 million years old. 
It's still older than M6, but still is basically a baby in the grand scheme of like astronomical timescales. The top 10% of the brighter stars in M7 are large enough that they will eventually end in violent supernova explosions, while the rest of the stars are fainter and will gradually kind of drift apart until there is no longer a cluster. But some of these stars are big enough to be supernovas. Speaking of the size, the stars that are in the cluster have been calculated and added together to come to that the cluster is estimated to be about as large as 735 times the mass of the sun. The sun being the star that is in the center of our solar system that all the planets revolve around. But much, much more massive. Like, it's kind of interesting. We think of our sun and then this cluster has about 80 stars in it, but it's 735 times more massive than the sun. It just kind of shows you guys how our sun is like incredibly average. But oh well, our, I like our sun. Okay, and this is the thing that I am super excited about. On August 29th, 2006, Messier 7 was actually the target for the first light that the long-range reconnaissance image imager telescope, um, we'll just kind of say that LORI, it is a short form for the telescope, which is aboard the New Horizons spacecraft. The New Horizons spacecraft being the famous spacecraft for multiple reasons, but mostly for flying past Pluto and getting the famously high-definition image that we know and love today of the planet. But like, this is so cool. So the first thing that that telescope saw was this cluster. And it was probably one of the things that they used to check to make sure everything was working properly and calibrated and all that kind of stuff. Maybe this isn't as cool for you guys as it is for me, but working at the observatory where Pluto was discovered and seeing, touching the telescope and that kind of stuff, like the physical things that Clyde Tombaugh used to discover this planet or a dwarf planet nowadays, it's just, I don't know, something like this uh, is just kind of really cool with the New Horizons. So this is your guide into the very bright Messier 7, or the Ptolemy Cluster. I have seen this object before. Actually, remember I was talking about the observatory event in Utah? Well, I think I actually found this cluster at one point when I was trying to find the Butterfly Cluster, our last object. The shapes of what I saw and online images look pretty similar to what I remember. Assuming I am correct, this was actually a very, very bright object, like noticeably bright. I had someone describe it as a bunch of diamonds, and I think that that is the greatest description ever for this object, because it really does. But I honestly kind of liked it. It is large enough to fill a whole eyepiece, and I don't know, it's just a solid object overall. In my opinion, even though it is only 80 stars, I like this one better than the butterfly cluster. I would recommend you guys using even just a basic set of binoculars or telescope to look at it. It is relatively easy to find, it's bright, and it is a great way to kind of seem smart to your friends or family, kind of show off a little bit that, hey, I know where this cluster is, I know what this object is. And then now you guys have all the information to answer all the questions they may have about it and be the smartest person in your group.
But there we go, guys, another open cluster down. Once again, how does everyone feel? Do you prefer globs or open clusters? Let me know by leaving a comment or tweeting at me. And also, let me know if you have seen the Ptolemy cluster. And if so, how did you see it? And could you see it with the naked eye? But thank you to all of you, the audience, for those that stuck through to the end of this. You know something I haven't talked about much? The Twitter. Make sure to go check out Pod on Twitter to see the images I talk about in the episodes and to stay up to date on the latest and greatest with this podcast. Also, don't forget, I have a new podcast that you should definitely go check out. The last episode being Bears vs. Babies by Exploding Kittens. Uh, so it sounds a lot more drastic than it is, but I guess you guys will have to find out what that is in the podcast. Not to mention, you can go check out the other podcast, Hot Cocoa Chats, in case you want unscripted banter between people for an hour. And lastly, don't forget to check out the YouTube channel, Zombified, for your gaming fix and for the Extra Life com, uh, top, uh, wow, the Extra Life content, there's the word that we're looking for, the content that will be coming up very, uh, not very soon, but relatively soon. I'm very excited for Extra Life in November. All right, I'll get over your hair, guys. Rate five stars, comment, let me know how you guys liked it, and I will see you guys in another episode. Mm-hmm.